So that passage that I just read is one of the more familiar passages. Uh, if you uh, have been a Christian for a long time, you've probably uh, heard it many, many times. And I think it's one of these situations where we tend to despise things that are too familiar. We, we tend to discount them because of their familiarity. On the surface, this passage seems to tell us to remember and to rest in Jesus' work on our behalf. And that is an accurate representation of the passage's message to us. But it's not the only nor the deepest meaning. A closer read reveals something far more profound, something which is fundamental both to the definition and life of the church, hence the title of the sermon, Church 101. What John tells us in this passage reveals the core ministry of the truth and the power through which that ministry is made effective. And as Casey and Third Reformed begin this new season of life together, I think it's good to focus on this theme of what it means to be the church. And so we'll look briefly at this important passage from God's Word using two points. The first is the story behind the fruit, and the second is the fruit we're meant to bear. The story behind the fruit and the fruit we're meant to bear. And I'll warn you up front, uh, the first point is far longer than the second, so please <laughs> don't be alarmed uh, if 20 minutes from now we're just finishing the first point. So first, the story behind the fruit. Let's say that I want to know what makes a healthy church. What, what do I do? How do I get access to that information? Well, I probably turn to uh, Jeff Bezos' gift to humanity, Amazon.com. <laughs> and if I go to Amazon and search for all the books in the English language currently in print which address in some way the topic of church health, I get more than 20,000 results. Now, I know that Amazon's search engine is good, but it's not perfect, and I don't know how many of those 20,000 books are actually on the topic of church health, but for the sake of argument, let's say that there are many thousands of modern books written from a variety of perspectives on the topic of what it means to be a healthy church. And so there are thousands of modern authors, rather, providing their own unique takes on what makes a healthy church? Essentially, Church 101. Or to put it another way, what, what are the core functions of the church? How do we know what the church is supposed to do, and how do we know when it's doing that effectively? Well, one of the most popular resources in the modern Reformed world has been around since uh, I was in seminary over 20 years ago. It's a book called Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, written by Pastor Mark Deaver uh, at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. And as the title suggests, Deaver suggests that there are nine must-haves in, in a healthy church. And I'll throw them out at you. Um, expositional preaching, biblical theology, gospel-centeredness, a biblical understanding of conversion, a biblical understanding of evangelism, a biblical understanding of church membership, Biblical church discipline, a concern for discipleship and growth, and biblical church leadership. So, according to Mark Deaver, nine marks of a healthy church. Now, for what it's worth, I, I know that 
his list of nine characteristics of a healthy church is good. And, and for as far as it goes, I, I think that he, he's done his work and all of these, these characteristics are based on scripture, but I think his list is incomplete. And the reason that I bring this up is because when a particular church is looking to assess its own effectiveness or its own relative health, or if a church wants to grow, its leaders will all too easily turn to bullet points like those nine marks and try to build them up in the church. And that in and of itself isn't a bad thing, but it can be a problem because often those leaders fail to realize that those nine marks are actually just the fruit of something much bigger, much deeper, much more dynamic in the church. And if that bigger, deeper, more dynamic quality is missing or misunderstood or undervalued in the church, none of that outward fruit will exist. It won't last. It won't abide, as Jesus said in verse 16 when he says, I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would abide. And so what is that bigger, that deeper, that more dynamic quality? Well, it's more a state of being than a quality. And Jesus names it in verse 4. He says, abide in me, and I in you. Abide in me, and I in you. What does that mean? And stay with me now, because we're about to kind of take a little trip into the weeds. The, the word that's translated abide ten times in today's passage is actually... The, the Greek verb meno, which means to remain. It's actually, seminary students love this word because it's actually one of those Greek words that kind of sounds like its English definition. Meno means to remain. And it just so happens that uh, in the English Standard Version, which is the, the English version of the Bible that we use, they translate it abide because they think that that's a better definition. So what Jesus literally says here in verse 4 is, you, my followers, remain in me, and I will remain in you. The verb is an aorist imperative. And I can just hear the eyes rolling back in your heads. Stay with me for a minute. And what that means is that this is an imperative from Jesus, simultaneously a command and a promise. He says, remain in me. I will remain in you. But the aorist tense in Greek means that the action is an action that begins at a single point and continues onward indefinitely. In other words, you could translate this um, literally by saying, start remaining in me now and you will remain with me continuously into the future with no end. And so Jesus tells his disciples in the past and he says to us, his, his present-day disciples, remain in me continuously, and I will remain in you continuously. But this gets more confusing. We're going a little deeper into the weeds. What does it mean to remain in Jesus? Well, one lexicon defines the use of that idiom to mean to follow Christ's example of a life obedient to the will of God. And for what it's worth, that, that's true. It's accurate, but it's also incomplete. And why? Because 
Remaining in Christ is doing, yes. But the bigger part of remaining in Christ is not doing. It's being. In other words, we need to experience being in Christ before we can truly and faithfully remain or abide in him. The Anglican priest and author John Stott wrote this in an essay back in 2007. He wrote that there were at least three implications for being in Christ. First, he wrote, was personal fulfillment as a human being. He said that it's only in union with Christ that we experience our full and our true humanity. In Christ, we experience a peace, a satisfaction, a contentment that is impossible to experience otherwise. In a sense, this is the the peace of God which passes understanding, guarding our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus, as Paul describes it in Philippians 4-7. And this peace and joy is what Jesus refers to in verse 11 of today's passage when he said, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you, and your joy may be full. So that's first. Second, we experience a brotherly unity with Christ. By virtue of our election to eternal life, we're made brothers and sisters of Christ. And by virtue of Christ's death on the cross on our behalf, we're washed clean of the guilt of our sin. We're made holy and we're able to be in in right relationship with Christ, with his Father, and with the church, with the people of God. And this brotherly unity is the very essence of abiding or remaining. It's it's the foundation of that relationship. We want to remain in close unity with the one who loves us in order to enjoy his love. And it's like having a great experience with your, uh, your best friend and wanting that time to go on forever and ever and never end. And then third, Stott says that we experience a radical transformation. Our minds and our wills are gradually and progressively transformed as we experience the benefits of being united to Jesus. As we experience his love for us, our hearts are warmed to him and we want to submit ourselves to him more and more fully because we want to please the the one who loves us so much. Jesus links obedience to abiding in verses 9 and 10 of today's passage where he says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. Taking this back to the characteristics of a healthy church, I think what Jesus gets at here in John 15 is that there is nothing more fundamental to the spiritual health of his people than abiding or remaining in him. And in order to abide or remain in him, we not need to uh, not just keep his commandments, we need to experience Jesus and his love. My wife Susan recently spoke with a friend who's exploring Christianity. And as this person was talking about what it meant to be a follower of Christ, uh, they said, well, I I keep the Ten Commandments. But law-keeping isn't the defining characteristic of a Christian. According to Jesus here in this passage, it's abiding or remaining in him, experiencing him and responding to him with increasing intimacy as 
friend, as brother, as lover, as companion, as spiritual husband. Out of that intimacy of union comes fruit. And that brings us to our second point, the fruit which we're meant to bear. Jesus gives us an analogy in verses 4 and 5 where he likens himself to a vine and us, his people, as the, the branches of the vine. What does that mean? Well, think about what a grapevine looks like. If you're at all familiar with this, we have a, Susan and I have a friend who actually grows his own grapes. And so we have grapevines uh, that are 50 feet from our house. We see them every day. There's a thick wooden vertical stem that comes up from the roots out of the ground, and that is called the trunk. And then out of that trunk come horizontal woody uh, stems called cordons. And, and those are the ones that are usually trained on wires in order to kind of keep the grapevine growing in an orderly way and uh, to, to maximize the production of fruit. So you have the, the, the vertical trunk, you have the, the horizontal woody cordons, and then out of the cordons come these green uh, fleshy shoots. And it's out of those shoots that flowers and eventually grapes come. And so uh, it's out of the shoots that uh, the fruit emerges. But the shoots can't do that on their own. The, the sap that empowers and strengthens the shoots to grow and to flower and to bear fruit has to come from somewhere else in the vine. It comes from the roots. It goes up the trunk. It goes out the cordons and up into the shoots. So the shoots depend on being connected to the vine in order to grow and be fruitful. So what happens if one of those green shoots is broken off from the vine or, or cut off intentionally? Is, is it of any use? Can you stick it back on? Can you put it in a glass of water? Can you stick it in the ground and it's suddenly going to produce fruit? No. It's, it's useless. It has no life. It has nothing to sustain it. It can't bear fruit. And as Jesus tells us in verse 6, that sprout uh, that has been cast to the ground is like a piece of worthless, withered garden debris that's just thrown away. The point that Jesus makes here is summarized in verse 5. He says, I'm the vine, rather, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he is it that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Nothing. And what is the fruit that we are meant to bear? Well, look down with me uh, in verse 12. Jesus says, this is my commandment. That you love one another as I have loved you that you love one another as I have loved you. My friends, the fruit that followers of Christ are meant to bear is to love one another as Christ has loved us. It doesn't mean that the nine marks of a healthy church that Mark Deaver has been teaching for years are wrong. But what it means is that they're all secondary outward signs of the, the fruit of, a, of an otherwise healthy church. And that fruit has nothing more than, nothing less than, uh, is rather nothing more or less than loving one another completely and humbly and faithfully. As Peter puts it in 1 Peter 1, verses 22 and 23, he says, Have a sincere brotherly love 
loving one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. We love one another completely and humbly and faithfully because we've experienced that same love, only in a perfect way, through our elder brother, Jesus. The only way that we can bear that fruit is to actively seek and experience and rest in the love that Christ has for us. After all, we can only share with one another what we ourselves have received and experienced. So what does all this mean for the people of Third Reformed and for Casey? At least three things. The first is that I believe the Lord is calling you all to find life and joy and strength in being united to the vine, of being united to Christ. Learn what it means to experience together the new life that is yours in Christ. Slow down and learn to actually experience the love that Jesus has for his church. Learn what it means that you can only thrive if you remain connected to the vine. Second, focus on the fruit. And what I mean by this is to focus on the fruit of loving one another as Christ has loved you. That's what matters most to Jesus and his church. Brothers and sisters, we, we think that the church is supposed to do many things, but it really just comes down to two core uh, missions that the Lord has given to us in Matthew 28. Uh, before he ascended to heaven, Jesus told his disciples, make disciples, uh, go out and proclaim the gospel, make disciples, and glorify me in that work. And so we, we are called to proclaim the gospel and make disciples, but in order to do that, we need to share the love that we have received from God with them in order that they would know the character and the person of this God whom we serve. That they would know that God is trustworthy because he loves his people and didn't withhold anything, including his own son, in order that we would be brought near to him and remain with him forever. That's what matters most to Jesus about his church, that we would proclaim that to one another. But we tend to focus on secondary things that should only develop as the fruit of the first. We, we tend to focus on things like success and evangelism, on numerical growth, on growing income, on having excellent worship, or a God-glorifying music program, or a good website. And these things are all important. In, in their own place. But they themselves aren't the fruit of abiding in Christ. They can only become effective and develop as we focus on the fruit itself, the core fruit, loving one another as Christ has loved us. And third, I think the Lord is calling Third Reformed and Casey to be the fruit. I recently heard a message from a Reformed pastor named Roy Ortland who said this. He said, the Reformed church gets its theology right, but one of the things that we get dead wrong is relationships. We don't value them nearly enough. 
And I think what he's saying there is that we, we don't love one another, as Jesus said, as he has loved us. We, we tend to love each other very conditionally. We love one another as long as we get along. We love one another as long as we meet uh, and fulfill each other's agendas. But as soon as disagreement comes up, as soon as a lack of faith comes up, as soon as a, a, a divergence of opinions comes up, that love tends to melt away pretty quickly. That's not the kind of love that Christ has for us. We don't love one another, as Peter exhorts us, with a sincere brotherly love, earnestly, from a pure heart. And my friends, I, I say this as one who does not love consistently well. But one thing of which I am convinced from this passage is that Jesus wants his church to be defined by brothers and sisters who strive with all of the strength that the Lord gives them to love one another as he loves us. And we will do that imperfectly. And where we do that imperfectly, where there is sin, where there is indifference, where there is a lack of common concern, there is an opportunity to come and repent and ask for forgiveness. Because what matters most to Jesus about his church isn't that it's big, isn't that it has a certain income, isn't that uh, the, the website looks a certain way. What matters most to Jesus about his church is that we are one. Two chapters later in John 17, as Jesus prays his high priestly prayer, right before he goes uh, to the cross, the thing that he prays for is that we would be one. Essentially, that we would abide in him, even as he abides in us. And so strive for that unity, strive for that love. Jesus wants us to be conduits to one another of his love first. And then he wants us to freely offer that love to the world. So in closing, what does this mean for Third Reformed? For the people of Third Reformed, I think this word means for you that your primary work isn't trying to, to grow the church. Your primary work is experiencing the love of God through Jesus Christ, abiding in that love and prayerfully and sacrificially offering it to one another. For Casey, it means choosing daily to lay down your life, to love the people of Third Reformed who are coming under your care and under your shepherd. And the only way that you can do that is to daily seek to experience and abide in the love of God through Jesus Christ. You can only offer them what you yourself have experienced from the Lord. And so both for the people of Third Reformed and for their new pastor, my prayer is that you both grow in abiding and remaining in Christ's presence and his love. And that from that place, you can see the kingdom of God powerfully at work among you, and through you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, this is a big ask. Lord, we know that in our sin, uh, we don't want to love one another. We don't want to abide in you. We want to satisfy our own desires. 
We want to accomplish our own agendas. We want your church to look and sound and act like we want it to be, not, not as you do. And so, Lord, I, I pray for the people of Third Reformed, I pray for Casey, that you would give them the grace to seek you, to abide in you, to love you, and to earnestly desire to show charity and affection and humility toward one another because they themselves have experienced everything that they need in the love and work of Jesus Christ. Lord, glorify yourself in the years to come at this church. Glorify yourself through Casey's ministry. And glorify yourself, Lord, as this people grows in abiding. All this we pray in Jesus' name.